Welcome to Tactical Breakdown. Today's episode, we're talking about firearms, what makes a good shooter, and a lot more. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown podcast on the Islet Network. Your number one resource for law enforcement training. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, we're back here at Tactical Breakdown, the number one podcast for law enforcement training. Here we go with another episode from our ILETA 2021 conference. Today I'm sitting down with Matt Little. We're going to go over his background and experience during the podcast, so I'll leave that for the episode. I do real quickly, if you haven't already subscribed or followed the podcast, definitely recommend that you do so, but do so after the episode. Listen to the information and the training that we're putting out there, and if you feel it's right for you or you want to get more information about training, and we cover tons of topics, not just firearms training, please consider subscribing to the podcast or following the podcast. Or you can just check us out at the ILET Network at ILET.network for all of the training courses, seminars, summits, and uh, a whole bunch of other stuff that we got going on there. So just check it out. Um, All right, let's get into this episode with Matt Little. Here we go. Hey everyone, Adam Kanakin here with ILET Network, sitting down here at ILETA 2021 with my friend Matt Little, former Chicago PD SWAT former SF operator. Thanks for joining me, man. Thanks for taking the time and being here. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to this a lot. We had a, we had a great conversation yesterday, so I'm sure we're going to have a good one today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, this conference is, is great for just getting different points of view. Um, you have a very specific point of view, having both military and law enforcement background, and, and I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, but I want to talk about the, the class you're down here running and sharing with the instructors here this week. Okay, what I did for this conference is I put together an abbreviated version of the two-day pistol class that I teach. And kind of the genesis of this class, it's a bit of a story, so if you don't mind me kind of stretching it out, I'll I'll go ahead and kind of fill in the details. So I joined the Army at 18 and was active duty for a while, and then got out, became a cop, stayed in the National Guard and 20th Special Forces Group, and spent the next several decades bouncing back and forth between the military and the police department. Um, in both jobs, I cared a lot about my proficiency, especially with shooting. Like I, I really cared about being a good shooter. But the training I'd had was just the training that everyone else gets. And I kind of sought out things on my own. I looked at what like you know, competitors were doing. I came up with drills. I worked on things. And I was always comfortably at the top when I was shooting among my peers, unless I was shooting with someone who competed at a high level. And in that case, they were always better than me. Then after years of urging by guys like uh, Frank Proctor, who was in 20th group with me, great firearms instructor, I decided to start competing. And it really changed the way I looked at my firearms. Because what happened is I, I made master class in USPSA very, very quickly, but then plateaued immediately for a couple of years. Because the things that I had always done that had gotten me to that point were no longer serving me well. They were now holding me back, they were preventing me from getting to be better. So I had to spend this long process where I literally deconstructed my firearms training and my shooting and then built it back up, looking at how competitors trained, looking at how the people that were truly the best at this did things. And I came to some pretty interesting realizations, I think, about nature of firearms training for military and law enforcement and how it 
it needs to be done if you want to be really, really good, as opposed to how it's commonly done institutionally. And this isn't necessarily a knock on like introductory training, because there's logistical reasons why it has to be done the way it is. But if you want to get beyond a certain point, you have to take on that yourself. You have to go after it yourself, because no one else is going to do it for you, right? No matter what organization you're a part of, you have to, you have to invest in it. And I came up with a system of training your shooting like, like all athletes train, because shooting is an athletic skill. But the problem is everybody, even phenomenal athletes, tend to act like the laws of athletic performance don't apply when they have a gun in their hand. I mean, it's, I've seen former D1 football players. I've seen a former NFL player who was on my SWAT team, and I had to remind him that you're an athlete. This is still athletic. Do the same things you did before so that he could be better at what he did. And my class is basically everything I wish somebody had told me when I was 18 about becoming a good shooter. Because I could have been at the level I am now by the time I was 23 or 25 instead of it taking me decades to get to where I'm finally at. So I'm kind of trying to shortcut it for other people, give them the benefit of the mistakes I made and the detours and the blind turns I took, and give them a system they can use for figuring this stuff out for themselves. Because in the end, you have to figure it out for yourself. Here's what I find most interesting. Special Forces background, SWAT background. Those are two, two components of, of what we can do in this industry, in the, in, in the military, that are at the highest, highest level. The main argument that you always get is, well, those guys get as many rounds as they want. Like, they can shoot whenever they want. You had that. You, had the, you could go to the range. You could do as much training as you wanted. You, and then you found yourself saying, I'm still nowhere near where I need to be. Like, I still need to improve. That is a mindset that I don't think a lot of people have. They think that, well, if I only got the amount of training that SWAT gets, I would be a way better shooter. And you're saying, that's not necessarily the case. Nope. Well, it's not that you won't be better. It's that you won't reach your potential. Um, sheer number of rounds fired, no guarantee of skill. Right? It's... There has to be a system in place, a way of looking at your training so that every round you fire in practice is a lesson. You're learning something from every drill, everything you do. I think all too often we look at it with just this volume mentality, whereas more is better. Um, I know I used to. And it's not like I didn't shoot a lot of rounds, but they weren't getting me where I needed to be. So I had to look at the why and the underpinnings and the principles underneath things and figure out a better way to do it so I could get better. I want to touch on, I want to talk about the, the different, when we have officers that say, I would never do the, I would never go do um, IPSC or do any of those types of training because it's not my type, it's not the shooting that we need to do as a law enforcement officer, right? Like, cause that, like that's, that's sport, that's competitive. It's, it's completely different. And again, here you are with your level of experience saying that helped me. It's, it's actually, so I, I want to make sure I articulate this correctly, right? Because, yes, you move through a USPSA or IPSC stage differently than you move through CQB or a one-on-one -on -one gunfight, right? It's different. But the principles underlying the movement, the principles underlying the shooting, are not different. It's how you're applying them. Both competition and combat are application of your shooting, right? 
And the better a shooter you are, the better your chances of prevailing are. Your shooting drives your tactics. You can talk all you want about tactics and mindset and all the other you know, nebulous, intangible things we talk about. But the bottom line is, if you can't shoot at a very high level, then you're holding yourself back. Your tactics may not carry the day. You need that skill in order to use the tactics you have learned. It has to be there. And the people at the very top special operations game routinely bring in, you know, the, the Army SMU routinely brings in top competitors for a specific reason, because they're the best in the world at shooting. And shooting is shooting. It's still the same, regardless. How you apply the shooting is different, but the shooting doesn't change. And I'm going to quote uh, a good friend of mine, Matt, from X-Ray Alpha, who retired out of an SMU. He says that gunfighters are the ultimate gamers. And it's true. You're, you're playing a very high-stakes game, to put it you know, kind of bluntly. And you want every advantage you can get. I find all too often that when people have that statement about competition being different from combat, either they don't understand the training methodology, they don't understand, you know, that it's, yes, it's a drill you're doing. It is not a scenario. But it's going to make you a better shooter and a better mover and a better thinker. And all those attributes carry over to the real thing. So either they don't understand that, or it's often, and I'm going to be a little blunt here, it's often simply an ego thing. It's ego. It's, I don't want to get shown up because, you know, I have a long tab and a green beret, or I have, you know, um, I'm a ranger, or I've got a trident, or, you know, I'm on a SWAT team. They don't want to go there and get beat by some 60-year-old guy on oxygen with a walker or a teenage girl. And when you go to competition, especially in the beginning, you're going to get beat by people and just wonder what happened. You know, you're going to show up and some guy's going to walk up on his walker and take his oxygen mask off and set it on the walker and walk over to the line to get ready and make his gun ready. And the beep's going to go off and the Tasmanian double's going to come out of that guy. And he's going to be two alpha, two alpha, alpha Charlie on every target. And he's going to walk away with a fast time. And he's going to, t- he's going to take your lunch money. He's going to beat you up at kindergarten and take your lunch money. <laughs> And you watch this guy, and he goes back to the walker, and he puts the oxygen back on, and he hobbles away, and you're like, what, what just happened? And that's out there. Like, it's, I knew before I started competing how good the greats were, because like I said, I cared about my shooting. So I would get you know, VHS and then DVDs later on and watch things on YouTube and see the top competitors. So I got how good they were. What I didn't get, though, is the depth of skill that's out there. You can go to a local USPSA match and find some guy who's an IT guy or a construction worker, and he will humble you. And that's, that's an important thing, and people don't look at it that way. And I don't know why, because like guys in my former lines of work who do martial arts, who do say BJJ, right? They'll go to the dojo, mm-hmm. and they'll intentionally seek out somebody who can stomp them so that they get better. But then they go to the range, and they don't want to be shown up. And it's the same. You know, I, I was a martial artist my whole life, and that's another thing that kind of informs the way I look at training. Like, you know, when you go train in the dojo, you don't want to train against someone you're better than on a regular basis because you'll stagnate. You want to occasionally, of course, but, you know, to help them. But you want to seek out the people that are better than you so you learn to get better. Or like, uh, or like the BJJ guy who's the best guy in the dojo, so what does he do? He trains with somebody and puts himself in a disadvantageous position. He gives the other guy the lead, the advantage, and then tries to work out from it so that he gets that challenge, right? It's the same thing with shooting. Um, 
you know, I, for decades, I was comfortably, like, I felt good among my peers, and that held me back. I should have been out there seeking out the national champions and, you know, getting curb stomped and getting my lunch money taken. That would have made me better. You know, you bring up BJJ, a story that I love to share with instructors, especially DT instructors, was, like, I've been, myself, I've been a lifelong martial artist, but more traditionally, like, Sikaran, karate, you know, even things like Krav and Taekwondo and, and whatever, all but very stand-up based martial arts, kicks and punches. Um, I was a DT instructor. We did some ground fight training and things like that. And I was proficient and I could teach it and I understood yeah. it. But I knew there was a hole. And I went and that's and I and I went to a, a gym and there was a, a, a Gracie Humida gym and I said, Hey, I'm an instructor, like I'm this is what I do. I I was blunt with him like here's how I I know I have a hole here but I want to come and, and learn um, and he literally put me with like some 14 year old kid blue belt and he f- tapped me like probably 14 times in five minutes yeah. and you're sitting I'm and I'm 230 pounds trained martial artist have been through military training have trained law enforcement police security my whole life and this kid just made me look like a complete joke and that was, for me, that was that motivation that I needed. I got so reinvigorated. It was like the first day I'd ever done martial arts training. I was, I was so excited to start that journey fresh. And because and for those of us that have done it, like you, you enjoy the process. Yes. It's when the process ends that you're just like, well, what the fuck? And then you have to find something new or, or find the next challenge, like you had said. I think that's so important for instructors, especially instructors to learn. Like you always need to be finding people better than you because if you're not, if you're not learning, get the fuck out. There's no steady state in nature. There's no stasis. Either you're improving or you're degrading. There's no, there's no I arrived. It just doesn't happen. Um, and I think far too often people get comfortable. They feel like they've arrived. And, and right there, you're not improving anymore. That's the end of it right there. Yeah. I want to go back to the firearms training a bit. What was it with the, the difference in the competitive shooting, the modalities and the training that you were doing and what you had previously gotten through the military and law enforcement? What, was, what were those things that you were able to take and then adapt to make your shooting better? So it, it really is like coaching methodology, like athletic coaching with a, a liberal dash of, of martial arts stuff because it's really the same. And it's like one of the things I talk about when I talk about uh, kind of the flow state or, you know, the that zone that people talk about is that that is no different than traditional Japanese martial arts talking about shin or no mind. It's the same thing. It's just different labels for it. You know, all that stuff exists for a reason. Right? And uh, the breath stuff in martial arts, that exists for a reason. Then you see SWAT guys now and SF guys now. They've got a habit of doing what they call tactical breathing before going through the threshold. It's the same as you know a samurai doing the breathing to calm himself before he fought. It's the same thing. This is the way the body and the brain work. It's not any different with a gun as anything else. The principles are all the same. So, like what I really did was I looked at kind of like I did a lot of research into the process of learning itself and mastery. All the books on like plastic mind and, and how you become an expert in a field of endeavor. And a lot of it 
just isn't done in the way we train firearms. You know, you need to have consistent, frequent, deliberate, and purposeful practice. You need to have a feedback loop so that you test yourself and realize what needs to be improved and prioritize those moving forward. You need to understand um, interleaving practice instead of block practice, how to weave those things through your session. You've got to work on individual components in isolation without layering in the distractors. All too often, you see guys that, you know, they throw around the adage, train like you fight, which is one of the things that I absolutely hate because no, nobody really does that for anything else. Name me one top MMA fighter that does nothing but full contact sparring. Name me one. There isn't one, right? Name me one football team that does nothing but put on pads and scrimmage. There's not one. But for some reason, a lot of SWAT trainers think you should put on every piece of kit every time you shoot and make it as miserable and uncomfortable as possible. It's not that there's not a time and a place for that. There is. But that's not how you develop a skill. To develop an athletic skill, you want to remove the distractions, to purify it, to make it as easy as possible to ingrain that skill and make it sharp. Then you start layering the distractions back in and you test yourself and you see how it holds up. When it breaks, you go back and you do that again. And that process isn't typically done in institutional training for units, it's a general rule. And I think that's vital. I also think we misunderstand. I know plenty of guys are serious about their training, but they only practice their shooting when their team is going to the range. And if you're training infrequently for large, long blocks of training at an infrequent basis, you're severely hindering your improvement. Now, there's so many studies that show that short, frequent bouts of training are far better. And the way that applies to shooters is even if you're not going to the live fire range unless your team goes, there's dry fire. And dry fire is so misunderstood on the mm. tactical side of things. So much you can do. You can literally work everything except recoil management dry fire. And guys just aren't doing that on this side of the house. But competitors... You know, you've got top competitors dry firing every day for upwards of an hour. And just that sheer volume of repetition helps them break through to a higher level. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic point. And actually, interestingly enough, at the expo here earlier this week, there was a dry fire company that has a recoil system that's a barrel. That, and so that may even be changing where you may even have now felt recoil during dry fire practice, which, again, we have a tendency in law enforcement and definitely in the military where we're adverse to change. Yes. Institutional inertia. <laughs> yeah. There's so many technologies that are coming up. There's new fire. Like, let's talk about firearms for a minute. I know you're with Staccato. Yep. And I got hands-on with one of your systems this week for the first time. And I was like, wow, like, it's, it's completely different for me. And, I, and I'm and by no, I'm no means a shooter. But for me, that, just the, the, the differences that were made in the production and manufacturing of that firearm, I'm sure, and I haven't had a chance to shoot it, but I mean, I'll, I'll give you the floor on that because there's new technology is, it's important that we embrace the, the technology that's been developed that we've, these, these gains that we've made. It doesn't make sense to rest on what was good 20 years ago, like take advantage of what we have now. And I want to come back around to that too after I talk about staccato for a minute because that's also an important element of the training as well and it, technical experimentation not just 
equipment experimentation, right? Not just with kit, but with your actual physical technique. But you know, Staccato is a phenomenal company. Um, I've been on salary with them for a year now, and they were, prior to that, they were sponsoring my training company. And the bulk of what I've actually been doing here at the conference, at the expo, is working for them, working the booth, working the range, as well as teaching my classes. It is, it is the best duty-grade pistol I have ever fired, bar none. Um, and I think that most people that have shot it, in terms of shootability, ergonomics, would say the same. I've also, like, I've, I've done some pretty rigorous shooting with these guns. Um, the one that I carry and shoot with when I teach classes and when I demo staccato, I'm at about 7,500 rounds right now with no cleaning, just oiling it, and it's, it's running like a Swiss watch. It's running just perfectly. One of the big things people talked about 2011s in the past, people that even knew what they were, because unless you were a competitor or in a pretty elite unit, you probably hadn't run across them. Or they weren't that widespread before it became staccato when we branched out into the duty market. But one of the perceptions people had is that it was a gamer gun. That, you know, it was like a race car, but it would be finicky and unreliable for real life. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's, it has got the advantages of an optimized and duty-tuned 1911, coupled with the advantages of high-capacity you know, polymer grip module. It's 20 plus one rounds in a duty package that is very reliable, and is very, very mechanically accurate and is extremely easy to shoot. It's got the lowest perceived recoil of any 9mm duty pistol that I've fired personally. And that's a phenomenal aid to shooters, especially shooters who are less experienced. It's also inherently more mechanically accurate than most polymer frame pistols based on the trigger design and just, you know, John Browning's mechanism, his original design. And it's got huge benefits. I have seen people that are attached to their current platforms. I have seen people that are hesitant because of you know, their perceived impressions of what the pistol was before. But I have yet to have someone shoot it with an open mind and not break out into a smile. Like it's, it's hilarious to get the looks on people's faces because literally people get an ear-to-ear -ear grin the first time they shoot it and realize what a joy it is to shoot. It's, you can't buy skill, but you can buy performance. You'll get two separate things from the same race car driver, from a Ford Pinto and a Formula One racer. And if you're going to go into harm's way, I always strongly believed from the very beginning of my career that I wanted to have the very best tools for my trade. If you're going to go into harm's way and your life may depend on the pistol, your teammate's life may depend on it, some innocent's life may depend on it. I want to have the very best tool for the job, bar none. Mm. And yeah. that's how I looked at it. No, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, look at the, look how long it took to shift from revolvers to what we standard carry now with our semi-automatic pistols. That was a, that was a battle for a lot of people. Decades. Still is. There's still guys that still carry revolvers, right? Depending on where you are. Um, and there are new, I mean, there's, there's technologies now. There's new weapon systems that are out there, not just Takato, but many more that are amazing at what they do because they put so much time and effort and they put science behind what they're building because they understand it better now, right? 
Um, I do want to let you cycle back. Um, you were talking about technical experimentation. Yes. There's a quote I really like from, uh, from Hannibal, the sequel to Silence of the Lambs. Right. It's one of the opening lines of the book. It says, technique is the religion of the dangerous trades. And what I think Thomas More meant by that is that when you're going into harm's way, you have to develop this unshakable faith in what you've been taught in order to allow yourself to be courageous and go into harm's way, right? And that's a good thing in many respects, but the negative side of that, the flip side of that, is that we tend to become dogmatic about our technique. This is the way I was taught. I know this will help me survive. This is the only way I'm going to do it. I won't try anything else. If you look at competitors, they are never shy about experimenting with either technical innovation or and in terms of like their equipment, right? Equipment innovation are their own technique. They're, they're not afraid to experiment and try things out and see how they shake out. And if you look at it, despite the historical kind of disparity between the two camps, you know, tactical versus competitive, if you look at it historically, all the innovations in equipment and technique have been driven by the competitors. And they eventually filter through the SMUs down through you know, all the special operations forces and into like SWAT teams and into regular cops. But that's kind of how it gets filtered down. But everything, everything from optical sights on handguns to the way we all grip a handgun now as opposed to the way everybody used to 30 years ago, you know, um, getting rid of Weaver, all of those things came from competition. And yet we're afraid to innovate on our side of the house far too often. And it's just... It's one of the things that I think is vitally important for training is you, you can't be afraid to experiment, especially because technique doesn't necessarily look the same best for you. It's one of the things I talk about in my class. If you look at top competitive shooters, no two of them have grips that look identical. But they all have phenomenal recoil control, right? The principles that underlie their grips are the same. But their grips look different because their bodies are different, their hands are different, their psychology is different, They're shooting a different gun. So, I mean, like, like, as an example, like, I am basically the missing link. I'm, I mean, I don't even have opposable thumbs, <laughs> right? I, I doubt I have modern human DNA. Like, th these are not regular human hands, right? So my grip is going to look very different from a smaller frame person with smaller hands whose thumbs actually oppose like a human being. They're going to have a different grip than mine, right? The principles are going to be the same, but the grip is going to look different. So what happens is we imitate the way a technique looks without understanding the whys and the underpinnings and what's making the technique work for that individual. So we imitate the appearance of it, the shape of it, without understanding what's actually going on. And that's one of the things that experimentation will give you, is understanding how to make those principles work for you instead of blindly imitating someone whose physiology and psychology is different than yours. Why do we always wait seem to always wait for new things to cycle and filter through top tier units before and then for and it can be years before general patrol will see it why do we why do we wait for that i think it's it's a combination of that institutional inertia we were talking about where just change takes time in large organizations the bigger the organization the longer it takes to change things right I think that's part of it. I think part of it is just, it's that dogmatic approach to our craft. That feeling that I have to do it the way I was taught. And 
And that's also a problem, I think, too, because so there is a difference in the way you train recruits or conscripts or privates and in the way someone who has been doing this endeavor for 20 years, the way they should train, right? And all too often, we just we lock our training into the way we train a beginner, right? And the reason you train a police recruit or a private the way you train them is because you only get a limited amount of time with them before they're going in harm's way. So you have to give them things they can grasp and put into place to give them the best chance of prevailing when they go in harm's way. But that's not necessarily the best way to do it. You know, um, like a good example is the press-out draw. Press-out draw is pretty commonly taught to police recruits, where you bring the pistol up and press it out. For someone who is not going to do enough repetition to develop an index, that is, there's nothing wrong with teaching them because you're giving them a way to clean up their sight picture on the way out, which for them will be more efficient. But for someone who's going to put even a few months of regular practice in, that becomes a limiting factor, right? So now they're holding themselves back by doing the same thing they would teach a recruit instead of realizing, instead of realizing there's a more efficient way to do it if you're going to put the time in. With the course that you're running this week, I know there isn't just one takeaway that you're going to give your students, but when somebody attends one of your classes, whether it be here at Ailita or when they come see you and, and your company, what are those takeaways that you really want them to, to pull from, from you when they're in your course? I want them to have kind of the awareness after they leave to self-critique and self-diagnose or to coach others and have a system for training that isn't just going to the range and doing a bunch of drills haphazardly. It's actually a way to monitor improvement, set consistent goals, do a needs analysis of where they should be, and chart a path to get there as efficiently as possible without wasting valuable time and ammunition on things they don't need to be doing to get there. Yeah. Well, brother, I appreciate all the knowledge that you share, especially with the instructors here at Ailita. I appreciate you taking the time, sitting down with me today. I can't wait to do more work with you in the future. I'm really excited for that. So thanks for taking the time to sit with me, man. No, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Join the ILIT Network now. Go to ILIT.network. That's I-L-E-T dot network.